News. 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 New York City. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. My name is Alex Brooklyn. I am the producer. I am, as usual, joined by Harry Siegel and Professor Christina Greer. Today, we are going to be talking about New York in the 1940s with guests John Strasbaugh, John Strasbaugh, who wrote a book called Victory City, a history of New York and New Yorkers during World War II. It's really good, and it hit shelves on December 4th. Also joining us is Ron, Ron Howell, Howell, referred to commonly as Brooklyn Ron. He's a veteran journalist who now teaches journalism at Brooklyn College in the Republic of Brooklyn. Then we go to In the Courts with Victoria Bekempis. She's going to tell us about the Michael Cohen sentencing, the mysterious cough going around the El Chapo trial, <coughs> and a bunch of corrupt cops, prostitutes, what it has to do with the mayor, and the old commissioner, Bill Bratton, who might have to testify about it all. New York, 100,000 parade in great protest against Hitler's treatment of the Jews in Germany. Fascist and anti-fascist street fighting, white supremacists holding huge rallies, racists in the U.S. military, and war looming. You know what we're talking about this week. That's right. New York City and World War II in the years around it. And joining us to unpack all this is the guy who literally just wrote the book on it, John Strasbaugh. New York in the 1940s is the biggest city in the world. It's also the biggest mess, and it's very intensely messy. It just come out of the Great Depression, which hit, New York was the epicenter of the Great Depression, and it hit here as hard as it hit anywhere else. Um, you've got fascists, you've got Nazis, homegrown fascists and Nazis. You've got anarchists and pacifists. The city is in great conflict with itself, which I have found that New York City quite often is in its, if you look back at its history. And it, it, it nevertheless, it comes out of World War II and becomes the capital of the world. Air raid drills, dim outs, curfew. It was a time for serious observance of the regulations which had been set up just in case Americans should be exposed to the terror from the sky so familiar to populations overseas. Equally important was conserving materials upon which the war effort depended. To live for a while in darkness was preferred by all who fell under the shadow of a great war of survival. John, was, uh, we're all thinking about making America great again. Um, was New York great in the 1940s? It was great in, in some respects. It was the, the largest city in the world. It was the richest. It was the busiest. It was the largest seaport in the world and the busiest. It was the center of international finance and merchandising and, and manufacturing. It was still a factory town at that point. Um, and the media were all here. All the radio stations were here. There was like 12 daily newspapers uh, in English, plus a lot of others in other languages. So on all those levels, uh, um, yeah, it was great. And the Jewish capital of the world, right? It was the, uh, that's another point. It was extraordinarily diverse. There were more Jews here than in any other spot in the world, more Germans than anywhere outside of Germany, almost as many Italians as in Rome, more Irish than in Dublin. Um, more black Americans in New York City than in any other city in the country. It was very diverse in that way. Um, that diversity carried over into politics and, and religion and, and social issues, and that's where the, the turmoil and the strife, it was a very tumultuous city. Speaking of the tumult, I think there's a lot in the buildup to the war, as I'm reading the book, that, that's evocative to me looking at New York today, and hopefully this yeah. doesn't mean... 
we're on the verge of a war like that. Can you talk a bit about what you go through in the book about the fights that anti-fascists and fascists were having? I think particularly Italians, but, but I, I, found, I found all that fascinating. You know, I don't think any history has to feel relevant to today's news to be history that's worth knowing. I think all history is worth knowing. But the whole time I was working on this book, I was reading about all these issues in the news then and in the news now. So it, it's odd how much uh, the you know fascism, Nazism, anti-immigration, uh, America first, uh, anti-Semitism, all that stuff was in the news then. And, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of it making a comeback now. New York, it had, you know, a huge Italian community. So you might expect there'd be a lot of fans of Mussolini at the time. In fact, there were a lot of fans of Mussolini who were not Italian in America until he invaded Ethiopia and and got too close to Hitler. He was quite popular all through America as a strong leader who had pulled Italy out of its post-war troubles and etc. Hitler, the Nazis, had fans all over the city. They weren't just in the big German neighborhoods like Yorktown. They were on Park Avenue and some of the fanciest apartments. They were on Wall Street. Wall Street gave him more material support than the German-American Bund ever did. And it was remarkable to me as I was reading, as I was doing the research, how widespread and diverse the support for fascists and Nazis was at the time. The Catholic Church was pro-fascist, and certainly during the Spanish War, but um, even afterwards. They, the Vatican saw Mussolini and Hitler and guys like that as bulwarks against what they saw as a much greater evil, which was atheistic, godless communism. You know, so you have this fascist league of North America yeah. that's having street fights in the 20s. Yeah. There's bombings. There's uh, murders. What's interesting to me is that you have these pro-fascist groups, and they're dressing up like Mussolini's fascists, and they're given the fascist salute, which becomes the Nazi salute, that stiff arm thing that we all know. But you also have other New Yorkers, including Italian New Yorkers, who are out there throwing rocks and bottles at them and eventually getting into deadly fights with them, uh, knife fights and gun battles, and blowing them up. There were great anarchists. Carlo Tresca, the great anarchist, was here in New York. And as Fiorello was to Hitler, Carlo was to Mussolini and the Italian fascists. He said the most amazing things about them, and about their backers in New York City, and ended up being assassinated for it um, in 1943, shot on the street, um, 5th Avenue and 15th Street. So, you know, as I say, it was a very tumultuous time. Did people understand what fascism was and what it could turn into at the time? Yes, I think they did. And you, you got to remember, they're coming out of uh, the Great War, which was, you know, nobody had seen World War II yet. So World War I, the scale of it the, and the savagery of it and the brutality of it shocked the world. Even Americans who, you know, came out of it relatively unscathed, were only involved for a couple of years, were shocked and demoralized um, and deeply, they kind of had PTSD about uh, World War I. So you go through the 20s um, and, and the 30s, Americans are very isolationist. They, the federal government closes the doors of immigration to outsiders. Americans turn their back on the rest of the world and say, we're never going to get involved in the rest of the world's squabbles ever again. And, and yet, you know, right here at home, right outside your door, there are fascists and, or you know, quasi-fascists and quasi-Nazis marching down your street. And uh, during the war itself, was New York City different, like in regards to like the rations and the blackouts or the curfews? Was there anything particular to this city because of our large population that was different than others? 
Yeah, for one thing, we basically ignored the curfews. Um, it was New York City. People were going to go out whether there was a blackout or not. There was never an actual blackout. There was a dim out. They dimmed the lights. They didn't black out the lights. So people still went out. Uh, even Times Square was dimmed. There was no uh, Mr. Peanut wasn't you know tossing peanuts and neon anymore, but people still went out. In fact, Times Square was crowdier during the war than it had been ever before or since because there were all those soldiers from all the allied nations were plowing through it every night. So I want to pull in Ron Howell on this because my question is, what were black people doing <laughs> with all of this? You know, I mean, we have this very clear international war, the great war, if you will. Yeah. But we know that if white people are catching hell, <laughs> black people have already caught it. So in the in the time period that John's discussing, where were black people in this narrative? You know, in some ways, of course, it was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. My grandfather, my uh, father's father, uh, wrote a pamphlet, and he titled it The Menace of uh, Native Fascism in America. And he wrote it... What was uh, his name? He, Reverend uh, Charles uh, Howell, Garfield uh, Howell. He was a, an Episcopal priest from the island of uh, Barbados. And, uh, and he would sell that pamphlet and others he had written for 15 cents from his home hmm. on Jefferson Avenue, which was coming to be known as Bedford-Stuyvesant. He was very—he had three sons, and they were all drafted, you know, for World War II. I do remember that my father, when he was drafted, he told me the story of how he showed up as he was supposed to. And he was uh, hoping to convince them that he really didn't want to go— and didn't want to serve, you know, for very justifiable reasons, he thought. And uh, then they said, no, 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 you're going. And then they called out names, and they said, these are going into the Marines. And they called his name out, and he was in the Marines. And then after uh, he stood with those in the Marines, he walked up to the sergeant, and he told them that he really didn't want to be in the Marines. <laughs> and he screamed at him and told him it wasn't his choice and to get over there the, with the Marines. And they uh, sent them on a train, blacks and whites together. And when they got to Washington, they took them out and separated the blacks from the, the whites. And he was in a, a segregated, uh, I guess that was his first time, with, certainly with, um, you know, what they call de jure, legal segregation. Right. There were times, I think, he never came out and said it, but that had something to do, maybe a lot to do with his alcoholism. Well, we know that, you know, it's not until Eisenhower who desegregates the military by executive order. Why do you all think that FDR just, he could have done it. I mean, he decided to do, you know, the New Deal. And we know that he made lots of concessions, actually on the backs of black folks when it comes to, say, domestic workers with Social Security benefits. But what was his thinking and his process beyond? Uh, that's a good question. I think he was a conflicted man. His instincts were, on the one hand, uh, progressive mm -hmm. and hail fellow well met. He was a very affable man. At the same time, you know, he grew up in lordly splendor up the Hudson. So he had that patrician, condescending attitude. Uh, he. <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> you see, I, you know, he's always referring to um, blacks as colored boys. He's always referring to uh, Fiorella LaGuardia fondly as the little wop. A lot of it is with the urging of Eleanor, who was much more progressive and much more naturally progressive than I think he was. And some of the people in the cabinet and some of the people around him, he bans discrimination in, fed in the federal government in the New Deal programs. Um, you know, So they're hiring all these people for the New Deal, and at first they're not hiring blacks, and he is prodded by Eleanor and others to stop that. Um, but then I, the key point for the military for me, and it's an, it's an incredible story, I think, is uh, in 1940, almost simultaneously, he ratchets up defense spending 
And he starts the first draft, the first peacetime draft in American history. And uh, A. Philip Randolph and um, Walter White, um, two leading um, civil rights leaders in Harlem, come down four days later after he signs the Selective Service Act uh, bill into law to ask him and say, okay, now are you ready to desegregate the military? At that point, the military was almost all white. There were, I think... Maybe in the entire U.S. military, there were two black office, black men of officer rank, two mm-hmm. in the entire military. And if you were in the military and you were a black man, you were given the same sort of lowest rung jobs that you had in the civilian world. You were well, polishing still, grass and cleaning toilets. Well, we're still seeing that today, right? I was, mean, the Black Veterans Project is really thinking about it. I mean, the military is a microcosm of yeah, the United yeah. States, so the same systemic institutional racism that exists outside Big piece of the problem inside. with the military is that, um, especially the officer corps, to this day, is very heavily southern white guys. Mm-hmm. And you say whatever you want, good or bad, about southern white guys, um, they're not going to rush to desegregate the military, mm-hmm. and certainly not in 1940. Um, so they go down to this Oval Office meeting with FDR, which, remarkably, was one of the first times that a uh, meeting in the Oval Office was recorded. FDR was so notoriously vague in meetings. He had this great gift for seeming to agree with everyone in the room, but never committing himself to anything. So they would leave meetings and say, well, wait, what? (laughs) The two of them are saying, okay, now if we're doing the draft and if you're going to draft, you know, let's desegregate the military. And he evades and he cracks jokes and he, uh, he does, he's, at his worst, I think. Um, the, the, there's a representative of the, of the Navy sitting in the room who says, I know how we can desegregate the Navy. We'll have all white ships and all black ships. And FDR says, well, you know, we could have uh, the colored boys play music on some of the ships. They're good at that. It's just, you know, and the fact that um, uh, Randolph and White, you can't hear them smacking their foreheads every time he opens his mouth is a tribute, I think, to their... Um, their graciousness and and their discipline. They came out of that meeting thinking they had gotten the concession out of him that he was going to desegregate the military. And two weeks later, he the White House put out a report that that, in fact, was not going to happen. Yeah, I, I uh-huh. suppose FDR knew the price politically he mm-hmm. would have to pay if he did desegregate uh, the military back then. You know, it just wasn't in his spirit. It wasn't something that... Uh, on his uh, wish list, you know, to, desegre- to desegregate also, the uh, military. And he's running for a third term at the same time, because this is September 1940, and in November he's going to try to get real. So the last thing he wanted, you know, that was the last issue he wanted to deal with at that point. For black New Yorkers, I'm curious if uh, they experienced more discrimination and bad treatment at home or in the military? I suppose it was the military. And this is very much relevant. Uh, When my father um, was drafted into the Marine Corps, he became uh, uh, one of the very first Marines, black Marines in the history of the United States uh, Marine Corps. And why Uh, the Marines? Because the Marines, I feel like, is notoriously white. You know, unlike the Army and the Air Force. So why was he drafted for the Marines? You know, I I held back, but... One of the uh, things that caused so much tension between the black and the white Marines at the time was that the whites would always refer to them as Eleanor's boys. Eleanor had leaned on her husband to do something. Is that and they were her... able to, um, the Marine Corps at least, and it was the very same thing you were saying, 
but it was a segregated Marine Corps. On the other hand, they could say, oh, we do have blacks in the United States right. Marines now. And my father told me of times that they got into fights over it. Over them, you know, when the blacks are passing by and the whites, you know, they're at the same camp, but segregated, living, um, you know, in different um, parts of the camp. And so there are Eleanor's boys. And a lot of them, the black, didn't want to take it. And these were guys who grew up on the streets of Brooklyn. No one thought, well, if I say anything, I'm going to be lynched. So they would fight, you know. Yeah. And um, he didn't want to be in the Marines. I don't think he wanted to, to fight, even though, you know, he didn't appreciate what was happening with the Jews, I'm sure. And they hated blacks, too. But, you know, I think the as my grandfather, his father was saying is, you know, look what's happening in the American South. Right. And what are we doing about it? And there's a G-man, I think, that you refer to in the book. He was like a DA, and he kept trying to get the all the Nazis and put them on trial. <laughs> oh, Tom Dewey. Yeah, he was the Manhattan district attorney at the time. Um, at LaGuardia's direction, LaGuardia was um, one of the most outspoken people in America about Hitler, against Hitler, from the start. You know, Hitler comes to power in 1933. By 1934... LaGuardia is um, calling him a brown-shirted maniac and a perverted killer. I'm here this evening to join my fellow New Yorkers in a great protest, not against the German people, but against the present German government. There's a great story, um, FDR's State Department, you know, who have to ha- maintain diplomatic relations with everybody, including Nazi Germany, go to FDR and say, could you please rein him in? He's making our job much harder. No one has ever accused Hitler of being either truthful or honorable. And so the next time uh, LaGuardia is uh, in Washington, he he went all the time. He was down there so often that New York City rented him an apartment down there. Uh, He goes walking into the Oval Office, and uh, FDR looks up from behind his desk and gives him the the Sieg Heil salute and says, Heil, Fiorello. LaGuardia answers it, and he gives him this. He gives the president the salute and says, Heil, Franklin. And that was the last time that anybody tried to get Franklin to rein Um, Fiorello in about the Nazis. However, both FDR and LaGuardia were very careful about what they said about Mussolini for a very long time until he finally was clearly um, anathematized because they didn't want to alienate the very large Italian-American Democrat, almost entirely Democrat vote that was out there. And in fact, when they did speak out, um, they suffered in the polls for speaking out. Older Italians, especially Italian immigrants, looked at Mussolini as a great man. So, blinking the politics piece of it, Ron, you wrote a book about Bertram Baker, the first black elected in New York at the time. What was his role in this sort of larger national conversation and linking it to his black constituents in Brooklyn? You know, um, in other words, with respect to the the war and uh, all the, he turned out to be a very, very um, accommodationist, uh, democratic. Hmm. We haven't seen uh, that before. But, yeah, and uh, no, that's how he rose uh, through the. But he did it by playing off. I mean, I have a chapter in which I call him uh, master of compromise. Uh, hmm. He was there giving uh, talks during the the war. And he was very, very much interested in pulling everyone together. And that's what the Democratic Party was uh, about. 
trying hard not to be on the very, very far left, certainly not communist, very, very uh, sensitive about that. It hadn't, uh, you know, reached the um, level of um, uh, radioactivity uh, that it did in the 50s, but it was there. But there's a certain uh, irony. His instinct, I believe, would have been to uh, stand with my other grandfather. They lived down the block from each other, but they didn't communicate uh, very much as far, who wrote uh, uh, pamphlets um, really bashing politicians, and, and he's the one who said that, you know, we're facing fascism right here in the United um, States. In the African-American community in New York at the time, what were some of the specific conflicts between anti-fascist, uh, socialist, communist, New York politicians, capitalists? Was there any uh, fascist support in the in the black community during the preamble to World War II or in World War II that we know about? Oh, I would think uh, not. You uh, would think not, uh, but I, um, uh, the, uh, now I can't remember his name, but the one investigative reporter who was going around um, infiltrating pro-Nazi and pro-fascist groups really found guys in Harlem <clears throat> who um, declared themselves pro-Hitler. Mm-hmm. No, I, if, if it was, you know, it seems to me it was a very small uh, yeah, I would imagine. M- minority. I, I just don't recall that. It was very much... Um, the other side, it was uh, the uh, same whites who uh, decades later in the 40s and 50s and 60s were going to cause problems for blacks, including the father of someone we know very, very popular now and is mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., uh-huh. right? Wasn't, uh-huh. wasn't he um, a pro-fascist at um, yeah, you know, Fred, rallies? I mean, and, Fred Trump um, and got arrested. And, 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 yeah, and, and got arrested for it. And uh, there were communities on Long Island that were... Um, identified with the Germans. Uh, blacks knew who they were dealing with, and they knew that those very same people who were you know, pro-fascists in the 30s and 40s, they were the same ones who were going to be causing them uh, problems later in the, in the century and not allowing them to, to move uh, out to Long Island mm-hmm. as the rest of the um, mm-hmm. uh, veterans were able to do. Yeah. Right. John, you yeah. talk about some of this in, in the book, right, about uh, Long Island uh, and Long Nazi Island summer camp. camp. Siegfried, the Bund, the German-American Bund, had their own summer camp out there uh, near Yapank in Suffolk County. Um, tens of thousands of people would show up for their big rallies, like on Hitler's birthday and, and things like that. Um, the Long Island Railroad very helpfully ran a weekly Camp Siegfried special to get them out there. They had a housing development that was called German Gardens. Some of the houses had swastikas over the door, in in the concrete over the door. Long after the camp itself got closed down, it got shut down basically for tax problems because that was, you know, you, you couldn't stop people from having these hideous opinions because it's America and they've got their First Amendment rights. But if you can catch them, you know, messing with their books, then you can stop them. So that's how they stopped Camp Siegfried. Um, but years and years later, it turned out that German Gardens was still being rented only, uh, sold or uh, only to people of good German stock. It was finally a federal discrimination lawsuit that ended that practice in 2016. Right. That just amazes me that that went on that long. I don't I don't know if a lot of people really understand how prevalent it wasn't just fringe groups but how prevalent this kind of Nazi support was when so many German Americans this huge population here and we enter the war with this population that was supporting Nazis mm-hmm. to a crazy degree only years before. Well, and once again it's not just German Americans. In in New York City there were people from every 
part, every sector of the society who um, saw Hitler as a strong man, as an anti-communist, which was a big deal to some of them, especially Irish Catholics, for instance, uh, and the Catholic Church. So, uh, and one very visible sign of, of how big it was is um, the February 1939, the Fritz Kuhn and the German-American Bund throw a pro-Hitler rally in Madison Square Garden, which was then up on 8th Avenue. It held uh, 20,000 people seated. There were 22,000 people in the hall, so it was standing room only to go cheer for Hitler. They were not just German-Americans. They were, they were New Yorkers of various types who were in there. Now, there were also people, there were 100,000 people out on the street, many of whom were there to protest. There were two protests in the hall. One guy rushed the stage, a young Jewish plumber's helper from Brooklyn, and got beaten and dragged off by their fake stormtrooper types that they had. And the other protest was from one of my favorite people at the time, Dorothy Thompson, who was a huge journalist in the day. She was the second most widely read and possibly the most widely argued about journalist of her day. Um, She was the first American journalist kicked out of Germany for criticizing Hitler in 1934. And then in 1939, these wannabe Hitlers are giving their speeches and somebody in the press box keeps rattling them by laughing loudly and hooting and, and making fun of them, uh, and she gets dragged out. It was Dorothy Thompson again, so she was expelled twice in her life for heckling Nazis. You gotta like her. Yeah. <laughs> gotta like that. It was um, the German-American Bund's swan song. Um, they also went down for tax evasion and, and uh, other kinds of uh, financial misdoing. Uh, uh, Tom Dewey. Was- that was Tom Dewey. I think in the book you say uh, LaGuardia had had enough. He had it. Uh, I mean, he had always been anti-Hitler. Um, that came back to haunt him because his sister um, was arrested by the SS um, during the war because he kept speaking. If there was any... I don't think there was any American that, that the SS and, and, and the Nazis hated more than Fiorella LaGuardia. Even FDR wasn't as hated, I think, or at least not more hated. Very outspoken. They were railing against him all the time in the, in the Nazi press against that. They kept calling him that Jewish thug, and you know, because he was half Jewish. They arrested his sister and her husband. The husband died in, a, in one of their concentration camps. Um, the sister was finally released and finally made it to, a, to New York City right before Fiorello died in 46, I guess that was. So there was, it, it was tremendous turmoil in the city, and that goes on through the war. In uh, August of 1943... Uh, Harlem erupts in a riot. There are riots all around the country in the summer of 43 because you know, black communities around the country and black soldiers on military, on what were in effect ghetto military bases, had just had it. The communities had been as bad as the Depression was anywhere else in America. It was worse than every black community, of course. And many black guys said that they were treated worse in the military than they had ever mm-hmm. been in civilian life. Um, once again, because the military is, you know, largely run in those days by Southern white guys. And Harlem erupts in a riot. It goes on all night. Um, luckily, not too many people died, but many people were uh, injured. Uh, hundreds were arrested. J. Edgar Hoover and Fiorella LaGuardia and all the, the official voices are quick to blame it on outside uh, agitators. Um, it's those zoot-suited juvenile delinquents or it's communists or it's this or that. But if you look at who was arrested, um, it was a cross-section of the neighborhood. The neighborhood rose up in revolt 
um, because of they just had had it. But just as a point of clarification, I never use the term riot. Riot implies that like people just wake up and it's like let's just go burn shit. Like that's what white boys do uh-huh, after a sporting uh-huh. event, right? Flipping over cars. I always think that in this more political context, it's more of a rebellion, right? Where it's just a systemic, institutional series of oppressions consistently that people then need to outwardly express. But I'm always mm-hmm. semantically, I just never feel comfortable calling these situations riots. Well, yeah. Uh, of course, then again, you know, if you want to talk in the parlance of the time, it was a riot. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. But as I said, it was they rose up in, re- in revolt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we thought we had dealt with all this. You know, yeah. how many well, years? Who, who's 80 we? years who's ago? We? Well, I th- <laughs> you know, I think Americans. I, now, maybe not Which all was? Americans. <laughs> you know, we went to war to stop those guys. Well, n- no, we kind of didn't. Well, yeah, yeah, the well, 1940s absolutely. was an amazing time, of course. Uh, it's interesting, you mentioned Thomas Dewey. Um, if you talk about someone who was really kind of a sign of hope, Thomas Dewey on his uh, staff of prosecutors had a black woman, which who? was which is yes. fa- fascinating, you know, for the, the 1930s. And it turns out that her grandson is now uh, Stephen Carter, who's a law professor at Yale. Oh, uh, right. Kidding. And, I was just, uh, and just talking about him. Yeah, yeah, you just wrote a book about, about his grandmother. But... I was startled that I didn't know much about her because it turns out also that on the um, staff of 20 attorneys, she was the only non-white male, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. only non-white male. But the mere fact that she was there said something, and I guess gives people at least a reason for some hope because clearly it was no. And she was very active, too. She was active politically, active socially. So uh, despite all that was going on, I think there was... uh, a feeling that that black Americans had been through a lot. So the 1930s (laughs) and 40s, I mean, how do you stack that up against the 1860s and the 1850s, you know? We're going to get through this, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the 1940s was also the birth of Bedford Stuyvesant, a Mm -hmm. community that people are very proud of in the same way that um, blacks in Manhattan and around the country really are proud of uh, Harlem. And it was really being a born, a borning in the 1940s. 40s, the real estate market started to, you know, surge in the early 1940s. So you had that with black New Yorkers going into the military and saying, well, I'm going to go, you know, uh, deal with this and come out and get a job as a cop or whatever. And you also had blacks coming up from the South, Mm -hmm. you know, for the job. So it was a significant part demographically of the great migration that changed American cities and changed New York and especially Brooklyn because Brooklyn uh, came to overtake Harlem. So moving through the war and towards the end of the war, what kind of factors were going on that brought us into this intense period of the 1950s, which, John, you spoke about being almost like a step backwards after the war? Yeah. I, well, for for instance, for women, um, clearly, I, the there, there was a kind of revolution in women's uh, employment. The ratcheting up of this immense war production, the largest war production economy that had ever the world had ever seen and simultaneously the draft sucked millions of white men out of out of their jobs and at first employers were hiring any male they could find they were hiring felons they were hiring disabled males they were hiring high school boys um, because they didn't want to have to face the obvious which was that there were millions and millions of women who could um, take over 
take some of these jobs. By 1942, that starts to turn. By 1944, there are like 18 million women in jobs that they would not have had. And that's not just, I mean, you know, we know the traditional Rosie the Riveter jobs, uh, you know, at the shipyard and the steel mill, but they were working in uh, offices that they wouldn't have been in. They were in scientific laboratories. They were working for the bus company and the cab company. And There was a boot camp in the Bronx for ways? women in the military. That uh, At the same time, women are entering the military for the first time. Similar resistance. It took a while to convince the military to do it, but um, there was a similar impulse to that. The military leaders woke up to the fact that um, you could take a lot of the guys who were doing rear guard work, sitting behind a typewriter or counting boxes at the shipping yard, and uh, put a helmet and a gun in their hand and send them off to the war and fill that slot with a woman. That led to those guys being very resentful because, you know, they had these cushy rear guard jobs. Uh, and now they were handed a rifle and say, go out there. Hey, you know what? You're, this is your lucky day. You're going to be able to go fight and die for your country, just like all the other guys. And they were like, oh, great. And they, in fact, started this, what was called the slur campaign, um, who started these rumors that women only were joining the military because they were hoes or they were lesbians and who else, what other woman would want to wear a uniform and join the army mm. and that I spread like hoes or lesbians it's like either you're a slut it, it or you're one, a lesbian it was one way. or the other it, well you know you're talking the 1940s so you know they, they couldn't like really understand that the irony you know it's it's funny yeah i don't think that yeah that's a good question i bet they couldn't picture lesbian hoes i bet that was too much for them at the time <laughs> So they could only be hoes or lesbians. Um, but it had a huge effect. People, um, uh, women stopped signing up because they just didn't want to put up with having to, you know, defend their reputation every day that they were in uniform. Uh, the, the big thing that comes out of the war is that um, legally, by federal law, this great revolution in, in, for women in, in employment is temporary. Everybody doing war work that has a veteran come back who wants that job has to give up that job. In the Brooklyn Navy Yard, for instance, um, there had been like 100 people, 100 women working there before the war. There were more than 4,000 women working there during the war. Within a year of VJ Day, there were no women. There weren't even the 100 anymore. There was not a single woman working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I think all of this contributes to that revanchment in the 50s of women being put back in the kitchen, back in those poodle skirts, back in the, you know, those helmet hairdos that women were wearing then. I think Americans, American males anyway, were scared by the freedoms and the power that women had during the war, and they were very happy to, to right. end that. Well, we're seeing that now, obviously. But when you say women, I mean, you're giving me this imagery of, like, happy days with the poodle skirts and all yeah, that. So when you about. say women, are you talking about white women? Are you talking about all women? Where are women of color in this narrative, black women specifically? Yep. Where are black men who aren't in the war, who have these jobs that are temporary? Like, what no, happens to gone them? Gone right away, of course. It's a similar um, situation. Um, uh, it was a good time for black women. They were getting all sorts of jobs that they had not had before. Black men were getting jobs that they had not got before, you know, because of it was a necessity. Uh, you needed people to fill these jobs. Mm -hmm. They were all let go instantly, um, when the white men return. Exactly. I think America was less um, moving forward and less progressive in a lot of ways in the 50s than it had been, you know, in the 1930s. Certainly in terms of sexual politics. I don't know about all politics, but in sexual politics, the 50s was a definite revanchment, I think. But well, I, what do you I, think, I see Ron? the 1950s and the 
as a, as a time of hope for um, uh, black New Yorkers and black mm-hmm. women New Yorkers. A substantial middle class came up in the black communities of uh, Manhattan and, and New York. School teachers, you know, even principals. And we know what happened to, uh, you know, Southeast uh, Queens. It grew and it was a substantial middle class. So I, I like to see it in a positive way. And you got to keep in mind, 1954, Brown versus mm-hmm. Board of Education. That's hope, you know. Right. And then with my uh, grandfather, my father's father, who I wrote the book about, he um, pushed through the state legislature a law that was called the Metcalf-Baker uh, Bill that was the first in the country, uh, making it illegal to discriminate in housing. It is interesting to me that we're still dealing with all those same issues that people were dealing with back then. Um, I hadn't really thought about it that way. It's not presented that way in the in the kind of the you you know we re, we reduce these historical periods to a couple of icons and a couple of means and a couple of stories, and you don't hear about all this other stuff that was going on. Um, and then to realize that it's still going on is interesting, at the very least. That's one of the things I, I did appreciate about your book, which was this like verbose on ramp to mm-hmm. like in a good in a good way. This on ramp to really understanding what the city felt like. Like we do hyper local politics here on FAQ, and this was almost like a look into what the DA was doing. Like all that, mm-hmm. all that super local stuff, and how integral and how anti fascist Mayor LaGuardia was. Like yeah. who knew? Yeah. Well, it, but and he wasn't. You know, he. I, I, <sighs> Human affairs are really messy, and they're murky, and we spend a lot of our time being confused and conflicted about things, and we change our minds a lot, and, you know, and circumstances change. Um, there's that kind of history writing where you you draw out a big theme from that, and you tell people what you think they should think about that. There was no way I could write that kind of a book about this period. It was uh, an intensely messy turbulent time in in the biggest city in the world at a time when you know it's becoming the the capital of the world as everybody declared it after the war um at the same time that the world is all falling apart all around it so it's just an extraordinary time so i left the mess in and i left the murkiness in and the conflict and the confusion um you know for better or worse i don't know I'll, i'll let each reader decide Thank you guys so much for for going through this. I feel like uh, we could have picked a year and and just sort of sort of dug in. Um, well, we'll do that in February. <laughs> and, now, and now, to tell us what is going on with all the big crazy court cases that are going on in New York City right now is Victoria the Campus. 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 Wait, hold on. What number is on your microphone? Two. The number two. <laughs> Victoria, what is going on in the New York courts this week? Well, um, some minor developments, JK. 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 Donald Trump, the president, his former consigliere, Michael Cohen, was sentenced uh, to prison today for a host of things that he did against the law. Perhaps the most important ones were, of course, uh, facilitating the payments to several women to allegedly keeping them from going forward with their sordid stories about affairs with the now president. Um, Like Stormy Daniels, the famous stripper who 
famously did stuff with yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Allegedly did stuff. So her lawyer showed up, Michael, Michael Avenatti, and gave an impassioned, soundbite-laden speech after the sentencing. He said something to the effect of, Michael Cohen is not a hero. Michael Cohen is not a patriot. Michael Cohen was sentenced today. Trump will be sentenced next. I'm paraphrasing, but like... Not loosely paraphrasing. Michael Cohen is neither a hero nor a patriot. He lied in March. He lied in April. He lied in May. He lied in June. He lied in July. And only until his back was against the wall and he faced significant prison time did he decide to, quote, come clean. Michael Cohen was sentenced today. Donald Trump is next. Next. Trump is next. So Avenatti's up there saying some quotes. Enough quotes to almost make you think, is he actually going to run for 2020 or did he mean that pullout? I... <laughs> Did he mean to pull out or didn't he? Oh, God. Oh, jeez. Oh, I should probably cut that. Hey. hey. I mean, it's Wednesday. Like, we're at, like, the 60% mark of the week. So, yeah. like, a pull-out joke is totally okay. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> I'm glad you approve. Always. Yeah. I was making a joke about this microphone being the number two microphone. This is That's a poop joke. And poop jokes and pullout jokes are different in their acceptability. You know what's on our side? We're women. <laughs> exactly. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so yeah, he got sentenced to 36 months for um so the way that Judge William Pauley did it is he got 36 months total for uh, like the the first set of stuff that he pleaded guilty to which included the payments to the women the the tax evasion etc etc 36 months just for the eight counts of the payments and the bullshit and then he got another sentence just for lying to congress but that's going to be concurrent and not consecutively so total he's going to get 36 months prison sentence okay yeah You think that means he gave up a lot of information? Last week we were talking about that we could see maybe through the sentencing exactly how, not exactly, but approximately how much he cooperated. Did you get a sense? Well, so the special counsel's office, which, you know, pursued the lying to Congress uh, rap, they seemed the... Rap. 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 The the special counsel attorney who was there today... Uh, I'm going to mispronounce her name, and I apologize, Jeannie Ree. She said that, you know, Mr. Cohen's cooperation has been consistent and complete, and they seemed really happy with the job that he was doing. Southern District prosecuted the campaign and the tax charges against him. Didn't seem, like, super enthused. It was definitely, like, an issue of all of the stuff he provided still doesn't outweigh the stuff that he did. And they also pointed to the fact that he didn't sign a cooperation agreement per se. But, you know, Cohen, on the other hand, said, yeah, I didn't sign a cooperation agreement um, with SDNY, but it's because I just wanted to get the sentencing done quickly and move on with my life. Cohen insisted when he addressed the court today that he would continue to answer questions. And basically, like, he'd keep talking to people if they wanted to talk to him. Will he? I mean, what does he really get out of that? Let's see. Let's let's get some information for free there, Cohen. Let's see what happens with that. What kind of prison is he going to go to, by the way? I doubt that it is going to be, a, you know, a super hard prison by any means. The prison that, you know, his lawyers had mentioned in court as possibly being recommended was Otisville, which is in upstate New York, and it's uh, medium security. We, You know, it's been a while since we checked in with 
El Chapo. El Chapo. El Chapo. El Chapo. El Chapo. Do we, do we, do we, should we stop or continue? El Chapo. <laughs> <laughs> this week's update on El Chapo is more about the increasingly troubling ambiance in the courtroom that was uh, described to me by um, a source a source of mine you know who's in the courtroom been in the courtroom i believe every day a source, source in the, the courtroom source, not a drug source you know just to be clear Since like not talking, a drug dealer yeah not you a buy drug drugs from exactly what my source has told me is that an interesting and uh, troubling t- uh, turn. Wait, say just start again. <laughs> um, so my okay. source. Yes. Yeah. So my source. Well, you have to stay two fists away from okay. that. So okay. yeah. So my source in the El Chapo courtroom told me that um, that uh, it probably reached its peak last week, but a horrible flummy cough has seemingly taken hold of the courtroom where El Chapo's being tried in Brooklyn Federal Court. Um, the source describes it to me as horrible and that, you know, it's been lingering among everyone in the courtroom. It was really disruptive. Uh, the source said, quote, We are all, like, hacking and dying. I have a baggie full of ibuprofen and mucinex. People were passing them to each other. And I asked what this cough was like, and the source said it was a flummy cough. There's a contagion at the El Chapo trial. Yeah, you heard that's... it here first. <laughs> yeah. Making news on FAQ. <laughs> so let's move on to the NYPD corruption case. So presently, there is a trial involving um, bribes allegedly paid two members of the NYPD by a mayor, de Blasio donor by the name of Jonah Rechnitz. Jonah Rechnitz and and another guy, Jeremy Reichberg, gave cops gifts and goodies and and in exchange got perks such as an escort from the airport. This isn't connected to the prostitution ring like run by Queens cops back in September. We have a couple of hooker cop intersecting things so this one that this is corruption same year just to let everyone know same year so with this one with the one that's in federal court right now in manhattan um there are allegations that this you know mayor de blasio donor hired a hooker and took some of these cops to las vegas for a weekend with yeah. a new york hooker i believe she lives in australia now I'm not 100% sure if she was permanently stationed in New York at the time. So, yeah, so that was among the bribes alleged was the provision of prostitution services. But Mayor de Blasio is not going to have to testify, even though the guy who paid the bribes is his donor, or who allegedly paid the bribes is his donor, but who might have to testify? I believe Bill Bratton might have to testify. Police commissioner. Which, yeah. so that's that's big, yeah. Wait, is that it? Is that it? Is that all, everything that's in the courts? Um, thinking, thinking, thinking. And that's in the courts with Victoria. <laughs> Bay Campus. There you go. Hey. 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 FAQ NYC is brought to you by a grant from Civil, a media company using the blockchain to reinvent the economics of journalism. Headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, this podcast was recorded in producer Alex Brooklyn's rent-regulated apartment. 
It was mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara, and a special thank you goes out to John Strasbaugh and Ron Howell. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. First take, 50 grand. Nailed it. All right. Nailed it. Ladies and gentlemen, there are seven known wonders of the world. I'm here to... It is difficult, perhaps, for the new generation since World War II, accustomed to the myriad lights of their main streets, to realize that once the bright glow was dimmed, that in order to conserve coal, electricity, and manpower, while the final mighty effort was being made for total victory, it became necessary to turn the lights down low. News. 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 News.